All right, welcome back to the podcast. And today we have Dr. Heather McCants. And I apologize. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. I forgot to ask her uh, when we were interviewing. I forgot to ask her the correct pronunciation of her name. We didn't get around to that. But Dr. Heather is an Anglican priest. She was raised in Canada. She's currently serving there at the Montreal School of Theology. And we talk about all that assignment, what she's doing now, the pre, her previous assignment, because she just moved uh, this past summer, summer of 2021, she moved to this new assignment. I appreciated Pastor Heather, and she was just so articulate. It was a very easy interview to conduct, which is not always the case when you've not had a chance to meet someone or talk to them beforehand. Uh, we connected via Instagram uh, through some other things, and uh, anyway, she she was she's very articulate. Great things to say as we talk about pastoral transition, uh, forced change. You know this uh, the idea of change that's been forced upon us over these last couple of years. Some of the benefits that we are seeing and hope to see uh, come out of that forced change. She makes a reference to Susan Beaumont's book, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. So you can check that out. I've had a couple of people now recommend that book to me. So I did. I went ahead and downloaded it uh, to my Kindle so that I can read it. Um, I've had like the sample copy sitting in there for over a year. And now I'm like, okay, I just need to download this book and, you know, read it. Anyway, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Also, I've recorded several for my new series on neurodivergent clergy. And uh, I have a couple more to record in March. So if you have some questions that you want me to ask my guests, please send them to me. You can send me a DM. Anyway, I would love to have your questions. I'm also going to share a solo episode to kind of kick the series off, talk about my own neurodivergent journey and address some of the myths that are out there. Some of you, like these are, you're going to, you already know these and you've done your own homework on this idea of neurodivergent, but I suspect that there are a lot of people out there, a lot of my listeners who they've heard some, some of the keywords that are thrown around. Uh, I'm hoping to expand your understanding of what it means, especially for those of us who tend to fly under the radar. So maybe we're above average intelligence. We're really good at masking and so we fly under the radar and a lot of people, unless they spend a significant amount of time, don't really even notice our quirks. Or maybe they do notice our quirks, but they just don't say anything about it. Anyway, uh, so keep an eye out for those. Thanks for helping me. I'm so close to 5,000 downloads. These next episodes should hopefully push me over the edge. Please keep sharing. It's been great to get feedback from new listeners. And anyway, here you go. Enjoy this next episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Well, welcome to the podcast. Anyway, I'm glad to finally connect up with you. And maybe one day, if this pandemic ever ends, I will get to Canada again. 
Yes, to meet somebody actually in person. I know cool. that would be great. Yeah. Where Where are you at in Canada? Because I know you just moved. Yes, I'm in Montreal. Well, just outside of is where I live. But yeah. Okay, Montreal is. Are you guys right above or below? Or we're sort of just north of of the Vermont New York border. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, yeah. So you're closer. You're over more closer to the East Coast than we is, are. Yeah, we're right on the St. Lawrence River. Oh, nice. Now, how long have you been there? Because I know you moved. Yeah, I started here in August. Oh, so it's real, really. It's still new. Yeah, still new. Where were you at before? I was in Winnipeg, which is about an hour and a half north of uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, yeah. Now, when you were in Winnipeg, were Mm -hmm. you you pastoring there? Uh, There I was on judicatory staff. So I was working in, in the diocesan office as diocesan ministry developer, which is one of those titles that could encompass just about anything in the church. Right. Um, but I mean, my role really was about, well, I, I coordinated the ordination process for the diocese. So anyone who was exploring a call to ordination, I helped them through that and I staffed the committee and I made sure that, you know, they had all the education they needed. I also worked with parishes as they were in call processes um, to seek new, new, a new priest to come. I worked with a lot of our smaller remote parishes and there were a lot of places where they could not afford to have a paid pastor and it was too far away to make it viable for anybody to travel there, even for Sunday supply. And so I was working with these teams of dedicated Christian folk who were coming together and getting trained and getting some really good theological education so that they were the ones who were doing the ministry in their communities. So they would be preaching and leading worship and providing pastoral care and doing Christian education together and all of those wonderful things. So that was a really exciting part of, of my work there as well. So, so we're divided up into districts. So in yes. um, your diocese, which would be similar to the Catholic church that have dioceses also right. as well. Right. And now how prominent is the Anglican Church in Canada is that is you, are you a large denomination there? It's a reasonably large denomination. I think I think we are now third largest in terms oh, wow. of churches in Canada. But Canada is very much farther along the secularism journey than the United States is. So yeah, we might be the third largest denomination, but in terms of actual people who are on parish membership lists, it's somewhere south of four hundred thousand people. Oh wow, okay. We're probably closer to Europe than than we are to the States. And, you know, there are many, many more people, of course, who when, you know, the census people come and ask, you know, what's your religious background, who are going to tell them that they're Anglican. And so that number is closer to like 10 times the number who are actually on parish lists anywhere. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things about the Anglican Church in Canada, because, of course, we were a British colony. And so it was the Church of England in Canada until the late 1960s. But around the same time as it left some of that English kind of baggage behind, the immigrant experience into Canada started. To, and so anyone who was coming from anywhere in the, in the Commonwealth often had an Anglican background. And so my last parish where I was the rector in Scarborough, which is part of Toronto, um, we had folks from Ghana and Uganda and Botswana and Zimbabwe and uh, Nigeria and we had folks from Sri Lanka and India and Bangladesh and we had folks from Hong Kong and we had folks wow. from like 
anywhere the empire was, we had members from, and it was it was a really exciting place to be all over the Caribbean. It, we had lots of folks from there as well. So that's so interesting. I love that diversity too. Yeah, um, yeah. that we that we don't get where you get more of that diversity um, because with the Anglican Church going back so much further than my denomination. And, you know, my denomination's newer, only like 120 yeah. years old. So Anglican Church, so much older. So you're you're going to have much more diversity. And, and then, of course, because like you said, it, it started in anywhere the, the British Empire was. Exactly, exactly. Know? So it's got, it's got roots all over the place. And what's fascinating when we get together is seeing how that common root got indigenized in different contexts so that you know what Anglicans how Anglicans worship in one part of the world might be quite different and yet you can when you're worshiping with those people you can still see the similarities and you can see how it evolved it, it, and so when we all get together in the same place at the same time it's really quite fascinating because we can we have enough in common that we all understand each other that way but there's enough difference that we can really start to appreciate how the spirit is moving in different contexts. So. I love, I love that seeing that global church and you get to see it right there. Yeah. For us here in the States, oftentimes, unless you're in certain pockets of the country, you don't see it as much. Sure. You don't see that diversity as much. You're currently uh, a seminary professor. So you left that, you left that uh, diocese position. How did that come mm -hmm. about of you moving? Well, first of all, you have your doctorate. I do. I have a doctor okay. of ministry. Yeah. So my doctor of ministry is actually in ministry leadership development. I did that while I was still in parish ministry, while I was still in congregational ministry and did that work just out of interest. I wanted to become a better leader myself. And I had been asked over the years to supervise about 15 students doing their field work or assistant curates, newly ordained folk who were just getting started. And and so I wanted to do that work better, you know, and so I, I, I did this education mostly for me and the deeper I got into it, the more I wanted to do it. So I was working in the Diocese of Rupert's Land in Winnipeg, and that was a five-year contract. I was in year four of the contract and this job posting came up and I was aware that there was going to be budget constraints in, in Winnipeg and Rupert's Land, and I wasn't sure whether my contract was going to be able to be renewed. It wasn't that I didn't think people didn't want me. I just, you know, that's the reality of the church these days in a lot of places. And so I went ahead and applied for, for this role, which is, it's my title is Director of Pastoral Studies. And that means that I am overseeing that part of the theological education that, you know, it's not Bible, it's not theology, and it's not history. <laughs> so I oversee for our student body, um, like preaching, pastoral care, liturgics, uh, leadership development, Christian education, th those pieces of the puzzle, along with my partners, because the Anglican Seminary where I teach is partnered with a Presbyterian and a United Church of Canada theological college. And together we are the Montreal School of Theology, and we actually share a lot of the teaching ecumenically and across college boundaries that way. So how so you just applied for that position then nobody approached you you just it's it's i mean it works different for every denomination it so does it does and it, no, it, was, it was an application process i think um a couple of people had seen the posting and sent it my way and said you should maybe think about this which in my life is often how god has worked to call right. me to something new so so i pay attention when that stuff happens 
is it what you anticipated? I mean, it's all, there's always things you don't anticipate or whatever. Uh, yeah, of course. Or I was is not it like... anticipating spending, you know, the lot, the first month of, of 2022 in pretty much lockdown and having to teach entirely online. <laughs> but that, you know, it is what it is, right? And actually the teaching online, I don't have a problem with. I had been doing that in my previous role, you know, offering online trainings for the last year and a right. half. Uh, the hardest part, I think, is when we try to worship together. And it's not that we can't, but as every Christian around the world these days knows, online worship is not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly, I've heard from a number of our students who are concerned that they really haven't had the formation in how to do in-person worship as worship right. leaders, which of course is different than just participating in worship. It's something really simple, like in the Anglican tradition, we have Eucharist almost every Sunday in most of our churches. And that involves like a ritual of putting the chalice and the plate on the table. And, you know, there's a whole ritual that goes with that. And I mean, we're Anglicans, so we're fussy about these things and everything has a a certain name in a certain place. And we haven't been able to do all that with them. You know, yeah. and it's sort of when we've been able to be in person, we rush into the chapel and we say, okay, we're going to learn this right now because heaven only knows when we'll be able to get back in here again, right? So that piece has been frustrating. Um, and I know that piece isn't actually on my shoulders. Our chaplain mostly coordinates our worship life together and uh, our principal does most of the liturgical training. But I know that the two of them have just been scratching their heads because it feels like every other month. We've got some new guideline about what we are and are are not allowed to do. So that's been frustrating. I mean, I have said to my students, though, you know, you guys have this incredible gift of walking alongside as students, as observers, as learners, churches that are learning how to change. And we've all kind of had this sense for the last like 20, 30, 40 years that the church is going through major changes right but in a lot of places people have ignored it or just you know try to do things with just tweaking it a little bit and maybe that'll make it like it was in 1964 you know and it hasn't worked but there really in a lot of places wasn't that kind of crisis to 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 force people to change and now we've had one right Um, And so out of that, I think a lot of our students have been in parishes, have been talking to their field education supervisors, have been talking to leadership in churches, and starting to understand how to walk alongside people going through all of those stages of change and transition, which involves, of course, grieving what used to be and trying to sit in the liminal space, in the neutral zone space of what what are we going to become, and then eventually please God, we will get out of this thing and something new will emerge and to, and to sort of be able to, to walk alongside congregations and people and churches as, as we figure out what, what God has for us going forward out of all of this. And I think 2022, I kind of came to this, like 2020, if you feel like you're like, okay, we got to learn some new things to pivot, but there's this part of you that was kind of like, well, let's hold on hold on to this other stuff because eventually we're gonna have to go back to this we'll so you don't go want back to, to normal. right well yeah. not not even necessarily go back to it but like we don't want to forget this because we're gonna have to reincorporate this then you get mm. to 2021 and you're like okay pa- like pack up pack everything up in a box and put it on the shelf and I think in 2022 I realized now that we're here in 2020 I'm like 
that stuff, do you just need to give it to Goodwill? Like, you know what I mean? Like whatever you were doing in your churches, it's done. Have the funeral. That's not ever coming back. And in some ways I is exhausting is the first well, I was January seven months long. I don't know that it feels like it was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, it's funny, yeah. it's funny or ironic or appropriate or providential. I'm not sure what's the right word, but just before we came on to have this conversation, I was preparing my lecture for my leadership class the next week, which is on tra- change and transition. Because those are the places I think where as leaders in churches, we really have to step up and step in to really lean into God's grace and God's calling on you know who did God create us to be and how do we be that now I know that was poor right. grammar but you know what I mean <laughs> right yeah how, how do we, how do we embrace that now and with the with the idea of okay this is this the old has gone right yes yes so how did you so how did you get this call I'm guessing you probably were raised in the Anglican church I, I was, I was a cradle Anglican. My parents were really active. We've never had anyone ordained in my family before, but, you know, grew up going to Sunday school and in the singing in the junior choir and all of that stuff. My, my dad was on the board and um, my mom taught Sunday school. And then it, as we got older, she shifted into facilitating Christian meditation groups and, and that oh, kind of hi. thing. But yeah, and when, then when I was in, in high school, I got involved in our diocesan youth ministry programming uh, in the Diocese of Toronto and became a peer leader through that. And it was really, I think, through that experience that I started to really discern, you know, when you're a teenager in this culture, people will ask you, what are you planning to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? But because I was so involved in the church, that's not the question I was being asked. The question I was being asked was, you know, what does God have for you, right? Right. Which is a very different way to think about that question. I actually started my undergrad in a bachelor of science pre-optometry program. What I was going to do was I loved sciences in high school. And my plan was I was going to become an optometrist and then I was going to volunteer with like World Vision or one of those other NGOs working in the developing world. That was my plan. That's what I was going to do. But I got, I don't know, halfway through my first semester at the University of Waterloo, where I was taking physics, chemistry, biology, calculus, you know, Whoa. and I was not happy. You know? And so I finished out that term, I transferred to the Faculty of Arts and kind of just drifted to courses I was vaguely interested in. And I figured, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but you know, I'm in school and that's good. It's keeping everybody off my back. (laughs) And what was really interesting was a few months later and all within the course of about a month and a half, five different people asked me, have you ever thought about ordination? You know, I said earlier, when when diff, when that kind of thing happens, when different people come at me with the same question, I listen because it's often how God has spoken to me. And one was my home parish priest. Another was the chaplain at the Anglican College that's part of the University of Waterloo. Another couple were friends from youth ministry days. And so I started to explore that. And, you know, the doors just kept opening. There are, you know, all those formal ordination processes where, you know, you have a home parish group that you talk about call with and you you talk with external people and then they all were affirming. They all were saying, yeah, we really think that this is where you are called. It was tricky because at that stage of things, this was in the mid 1990s. And I think this was happening in a lot of 
denominations in North America, younger people were very often being told to go away and get more life experience and then come back and look at ordination. And like the year before I was ordained, those who were being ordained that year were all older than 60. Here I was in my early 20s, a newlywed and, you know, trying to explore the same kind of calling. And it felt a little presumptuous. But like I said, the doors just kept opening and people kept affirming, yeah, we think that this is what God has for you. And so I listened and it came more and more. As I finished my undergraduate degree, I applied to seminary. I got in to Trinity College in Toronto. And the more conversations I had with people who were on the same journey, the more resonances I kept hearing and came to be convinced that, yeah, this is who, who God is calling me to be. Wow. I didn't realize you, it was like, like you were young, like your call came. I was young. young. I started seminary when I was 22. Yeah. I was really young. My husband and I had got married in May. So I finished my undergrad. We got married. We had that summer. And then I started seminary the next fall. Wow. And then now did you go straight? You wait, did you go straight into your, uh, doctorate? No, you waited for a while. No, I waited quite a bit. I actually, I finished my MDiv, started in parish ministry. I guess I was doing that for about six or seven years. Our kid had been born in in, the, in that period. And I was just, I was itching to do something to feed me, you know? And so I started a part-time Master of Theology rather than the Master of Divinity program um, and did like a course a term for five years <laughs> and got the Master of Theology degree. Um, and thought I was done. (laughs) And then um, my parish church, I mean, and I had changed, I was in different parishes through these years as well. Um, But the parish I was in at that point had started a process of examining how God was calling us to be more missional, you know, that movement away from maintaining the church for the sake of the church and looking back out into the community, into the neighborhood and seeing how God was calling us to be more present there. So as a whole parish, we enrolled in this training program. And so there was a group of folks from the parish who took the leadership, but there was a separate stream of that program for the clergy. And it was all around things like adaptive leadership and uh, managing change and transition. And Because if you're going to be in a congregation that's moving direction that much you need to be able to lead in those ways and that's when I really started to get interested in intentionally studying ministry leadership in 2013 my husband and I both took a sabbath leave he was he's a lay person who was working for the diocese of Toronto and we were able to line up our sabbath leaves in the summer at the same time we have a sailboat we're sailors we sailed down the St. Lawrence River around through the maritime provinces of Canada down to New York City up the Hudson River back up the Erie Canal to Lake Ontario that took us all summer it was four months and my study program for that was a stack of books like two feet high on ministry leadership and what I did is I started a blog and so like as I was reading I'd make blog posts as and that was sort of my accountability back to to my bishop and back to my parish and the more I read the more I wanted to know so when I got back I started looking at demon programs specifically on ministry leadership yeah and I landed at Tyndale University for that one in Toronto 
partly because it was a 20 minute drive from my house. So that was handy, but also because um, their doctor ministry program is really, really streamlined. Like the Toronto School of Theology, which Trinity College is part of, has so much variety. You could go there and you could do whatever and you could take this course and that course and then you could, you know, and I just knew I didn't have the self-discipline to do, oh, yeah. to do a program like that, right? Where Tyndale's was a cohort model where if you start this and you attend all the classes and you turn in all the assignments, you will be done in three and a half years. So it was the focus on ministry leadership that I wanted. It was an ecumenical setting, which I have always appreciated. It was 20 minutes from my house and they said I'd be done in three and a half years. I actually took an extra six months in the end. I was done in that period of time and was really just grateful for the whole experience of learning. And you learn in ministry context, right? That's the beauty of a doctor of ministry program is that as you're learning in class, you're putting it into practice as you're in the practice of ministry. So, yeah. And what was your, what was your thesis? My thesis was creating a mentoring program for folks who were preparing for ordination, specifically to help them in in leadership development. One of, I was on the um, diocesan postulancy committee, which in the Diocese of Toronto is the group that oversees the ordination process for folks preparing to be priests. And leadership was becoming clear as, as a deficit. And the seminaries at that point were not teaching it. I think some of that has started to shift, but they weren't teaching it at that point. And we were aware that it just, it, it, it was a blank that needed filling. And so I took that experience and what I was learning you know, through my, my studies and put them together into a mentoring program, recruited mentors from amongst some really experienced, really solid clergy and paired them with these folks who were preparing for for ordination. And over the course of a year, you know, I had them do a leadership uh, assessment from natural church development at the beginning and end of that year. And then I had designed a curriculum for them to use over the course of the year. Because what the um, natural church development, the NCD assessment identified is here's your strong areas, here's your weak areas. And so asked them to choose a weak area to work on. And then the, the curriculum covered all of the possible weak areas that they might have wanted to, to work on over that year. So, and they worked on that with their mentor? They worked on that with their mentor, uh, usually tried to design something in their field placement setting to actually put some stuff into practice. Uh, and then again, at the end of the year, retook that assessment tool and all but one showed statistically significant growth in leadership and that one actually wasn't in a place at the end of that year he wasn't doing a field placement he was he had finished his studies a year earlier but there hadn't been a placement a ministry placement for him so he was driving a school bus and he had a hard time finding people to fill in his survey for him because it wasn't just a self-assessment it was assessment of from other people who've experienced you in leadership and so he had a hard time finding people to take that survey with what he was doing at that point so I think it was it was tricky to to know statistically what that meant but given that the other 10 people in the program had all grown in their leadership ability yeah we we declared it a success (laughs) yeah that's I I love all that stuff and leadership and mentoring stuff and I'm it's so so needed um it really really is I mean I remember when I was being formed for ministry 
And yes, my seminary studies were important, absolutely. But without those mentors to help you see how to put that stuff into practice and why it matters and, and in, in, in the context of a parish, you know, understanding all of that is, is so, so important. Oh, yeah. And you don't know what you don't know when you're just starting. Yeah. Yeah. You, sometimes you you ha, you don't even know what questions you should you should be asking. You know exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so having good strong mentors to walk alongside people in in ministry. I mean, I think it's probably true in most human endeavors, but in ministry is the area I'm most familiar with. So I'll just say I can't even imagine trying to go into ministry without having that kind of a mentorship. Okay, so where did your cheerleading thing come in then? <laughs> Because at first I thought you were a coach and then I, and then you're like, no, 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 I'm actually a cheerleader. I'm actually a cheerleader. Although I did coach for six years at a local high school, but that came out of being a cheerleader myself. I started on a parent team. Um, My kid at seven or eight um, started cheerleading and the cheer gym uh, there had a parent team. And they, I mean, it just, it looked like fun. And I was at the gym. They were practicing while I was there for my kids' practices. We were brand new to this town. And I thought, you know what? This looks like a great place to meet people, to make some friends who aren't part of the church, which is so important, um, and to get some exercise and have some fun. I mean, that's really all I thought it was going to be. That was 14 years ago. (laughs) My kid walked away from cheerleading and went into musical theater within three years. I stayed Um, and then over time moved out of that sort of fun recreational parent team part of the sport into the open, more competitive part. And that's partly, I think, because if you're doing the parent team, if you're doing recreational stuff, you're just doing the same stuff year after year after year. Right. Right. Where if you move into into a more competitive environment, you get the opportunity to learn more things. So I got to I got to do that. And. So I have been doing competitive cheer for, I guess this is my eighth year. Um, And I'm on a team here in Montreal now that is training. We've got a competition in three and a half, four weeks uh, where we're trying to get a bid to qualify for the world championships. Oh, yeah. Nice. I mean, all of my teammates, my teammates are like half my age so it's it's really quite funny they all call me their cheer mom but the ones who can speak English one of the things about being in Montreal is that it's really a French town now most people also speak English but it does make for some interesting moments sometimes now do you speak French too I speak enough French that I can get by okay you can get by I don't have I don't have the theological French yet I'm working on that um, I sort of because I started in this position in August and moved from Winnipeg so moved halfway across the continent really yeah I pretty much we moved in and I started and so I was really just focused on getting my courses set up and ready to go and 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 all of that, but I think you know, over the summer, one of my continuing education plans is to do a week or two immersive in French, just so I can right. I can get back into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 here, if you pastor in like Florida or Texas or any of those states, you you almost have to know a certain amount of Spanish. You know, yeah. If you and if you don't use a second language, you lose it, right? And, right. And that's where I'm at. Where I took French all the way through high school, through university. 
and you know, except for a few visits to Quebec for vacations, really haven't used it very much. Have you been able to do cheer? Because you guys had a lot, you're a lot more restrictive. And I think you guys got your yeah. vaccines later than we did too. 2021 was more or less a write-off. I think yeah. we had a few practices. The, the cheer year more or less follows like the school year, the, the program. Gotcha. So we had a few practices the end of August, September, I think maybe the beginning of October of that year. And then that was 2020, 2021. Um, I think we had a few practices in person in 21. And we sort of tried to do a showcase, but a lot of the things in cheer, especially the stuff that I love most, which is the stunting, we couldn't do. Because that's, I mean, you can't yeah. do that socially distanced, right? right? Like, no, we there can't. There are four of us coming together to lift a fifth person in the air. Um, so we just, we weren't in Manitoba. We weren't allowed to do any of that. This past season though, um, in Quebec here, what they said was everyone over 12 had to be fully vaccinated. You had to have two doses. And that once they did that, then they reopened it in September. And so we started practicing September through the middle of December. And we were already scheduled to have a two week break in December. But what happened when Omicron started was, mm. yeah, everything basically right. shut down. So instead of being off for two weeks, we were off for seven. Um, we're only just getting back. And it's it's frustrating because the things that were coming so easy in December are just, we're struggling mm -hmm. for now. Yeah. Um, and so that is frustrating. It's a little nervous making because we know that we have two competitions the first two weekends of March where we can try to get our qualifying bid to go to the world championships. So that's the oh. goal. And it's, it's a little scary. The other thing that they have done, and I've never been on a team that has done this before, but they have brought in intentional alternates. So the mm. team I'm on has 30 athletes on it, but they also have three alternates who are people who've got lots of experience in cheer and they're learning more than one position within the routine. Oh, yeah. The idea being that if anybody has to be isolating or actually gets sick, we'll at least have some flexibility to bring in some other people. Now, do you have the vaccine for under 12 yet? Yes, we do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For five to 12 year olds that started in Quebec here. Well, in Canada, generally, I think the end of November, beginning of December. Yeah. A lot of those kids just have one dose at this mm -hmm. point. That said, I mean, Quebec right now, we've got 91% of the population has one dose. 85% has two doses. That's everybody over five and 47% have three doses. So yeah. we're doing pretty well though. But I think generally across Canada, the restrictions have been much more than in the States. So there has been, yeah. when there's been lockdowns, they've been much harder. There was a curfew. Nobody could be out of their house in this province between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for several weeks here this year. And then last spring, it was for like five months that curfew went on. Wow. Um, can't, you cannot go into a public place without a mask. You, you cannot. Um, and right. you, there are many stores like the big box stores you can't go in without a vaccine passport you can't go into a restaurant without a vaccine passport and in this province you cannot go into a church without a vaccine passport oh interesting the church like any place of worship the, the leadership hasn't had the option hasn't had to make those decisions which yeah. in some ways I think some people are relieved about it <laughs> like I've talked to colleagues who's like yeah our leadership was thinking about maybe requiring a vaccine passport I'm kind of glad we didn't have to because it was kind of controversial, but the government came in and made the rules. So we don't right. have to worry. Yeah. 
that I mean, there is something really deeply problematic about the government making rules about who may and may not worship (laughs) in a church. Like, I have some deep misgivings about that at the same time I think it's the right call so it's this funny kind of place that I'm at so yeah as a lead pastor I am kind of I'm kind of I was conflicted you know because it it made our job easier in the beginning it made our job easier because I'm like look I'm making so many decisions like somebody else makes some decisions and then and then when they said okay now it's church by church denomination by denomination it didn't just became chaos. Well, you know, I was talking to a Lutheran colleague uh, a couple of, I guess, maybe four four months into the pandemic, and she was saying how much she was envying the Anglican polity, where the bishop was making the call for all of the Anglican churches in the diocese, right? right? And yeah. so, I mean, it put a lot on our bishop's shoulders to have to make those calls, but at the same time, it meant that all Anglican churches were doing the same thing. There were, there were some times when we weren't allowed to sing. Then mm-hmm. we could sing if we were masked and we were two meters apart. In between there, there was, you could have one soloist singing and everybody else could hum, you know, like, and everybody's masked. So, you know, it was like, well, we've got very clear guidance. So at least nobody can, can say that they didn't know what was expected. So, oh man, I just hope I don't have to do this again in my lifetime. Kidding, right? Right. Once, like there's once been a couple good. of times in the last year or so when, you know, the WHO will release another news statement that says, you know, we've detected another strain of men. We're just like, no, we cannot do that. I know. I'm like, have we gotten to Omega yet? And when we get there, does that mean it's over? I don't know. So what are you doing now in ministry that you're like really passionate about? Is there any new projects on the horizon or things you want to start or? I feel like everything I'm doing right now is new because I'm in this new job still. But the piece of work that I'd really love to be able to do, if I had the time and the funding, is to do some more research on pastoral transitions and the process that gets used. First of all, because I think COVID will switch a lot of this. Now that so much of our worship is available online, in those denominations where you preach for a call, well, are you actually going to physically go to a place now or are they just going to tune into where you are now and listen to your sermon? Like, I don't know how that's going to work um, in places where, you know, there's a denomination that appoints the person in. Well, how's that going to work now? So I think COVID's going to have changed all that. But I also had started to do some of this research a couple of years ago. And it's become clear that despite the fact that there are a couple of really good centers for interim ministry training, no one has ever really done a study to say what kind of transition process works best. And I know there's a lot of variables in that, but like you can have where you've got an overlap, where you've got an outgoing pastor and then somebody comes in and they, you're both in position for a while. And then, they, you know, and that's, mo- I think most common when somebody's retiring, um, you can have somebody called from within the congregation and that, you know, that could be that kind of planned succession going on. Um, there can be, an interim, a planned interim gap of a year or two and what gets accomplished in that time and and does it stop all the momentum that was being built up or does it actually provide a helpful break or, you know, and I've seen case studies. I have seen lots of books that have been written where people are talking about why a different process could be useful and they've got, you know, it worked really well here and it worked really well there, but nobody seems to have actually done a survey 
of a whole bunch of churches and a whole bunch of denominations to say, right. so how how are all of these different models working? You know, mm -hmm. are they working? And I think COVID's probably because it's changed everything else, probably going to to change some things there as well. So I mean, I'm still really jazzed about the leadership training that I, I'm getting to do with students who are preparing for, for ministry. Most of my students are preparing for ordained ministry, but not all. I've got one who is definitely preparing for community ministry. You know, that's how he oh, came yeah. to faith was uh, through a community ministry. And that's where he, he sees himself serving. And so what does ministry leadership look like in, in different contexts? You know, as we were talking about earlier, that COVID has shifted things in the church so that everybody understands how to change now. We might not yeah. like it, but we've at least done it. More or less survived. So we will have been changed forever. But, oh, yeah. you know, the, the understanding of adaptive change that, you know, we have to change in order to stay the same, that, that kind of sense that people weren't really understanding before. Well, we all kind of get that now, right? We had to change in order to continue to, to, to be God's people, to continue to proclaim the gospel, to continue to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. We had to change how we did those things so that we could continue to do those things. And we get that now. So what does that mean for leadership? And I don't, I don't think anybody knows yet. Right. You know? Susan Beaumont's book, How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going, mm. which is brilliant, published in November of 2019. <laughs> you know, <laughs> almost, like, almost like she was prophetic. prophetic. Yeah, because yeah. nobody knew where we were going. We just didn't know how much we didn't know. And, and you know, rereading it now because I, re I devoured it then. Um, and I'm rereading it now for the second time as I'm teaching it to my students. And as we're going through, uh, we're talking about, so what kind of liminal time lessons are we learning? And what's that going to mean? And is it possible that through this, God is shaping a church that is learning to be adaptive? I mean, I would, I would hate for anybody to hear me say that and infer that I'm saying that God sent plagues so that the church could be adaptive because I am not saying, saying that in right, any way. Right. But that through this, maybe God had lessons for us to take mm -hmm. and that we can bring that forward so that if we can, if we have learned, if we can learn through this to be adaptive so that we can become better able to respond to the ever-changing world around us with God's unchanging truth, mm -hmm. how we do that, how we respond, how we continue to be faithful and still change, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and I, and I, and I think for those of us who are called to, to leadership in ministry, whether that's in congregational settings or, or other kinds of ministry, is going to really be crucial. You know, how do we lead people through this? Because there will be people who just want to go back to normal. Right. I don't think that's going to be possible. I don't think it's what we're called to, to do. But it's going to take leaders who are able to walk alongside people in a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity. Yeah. How we respond really determines whether or not it's redemptive suffering or just suffering. Yeah. Or just know. suffering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's at least make it redemptive. Once, somebody asked me once, you know, how my cheerleading has anything whatsoever to do with the church. And I said, you know, initially it was an escape. You know, it just was. Yeah. 
but I did a training session on appreciative inquiry probably 10 years ago now. And Rob Voyle uh, from the Clergy Leadership Institute out in Oregon uh, was, was the facilitator. And he asked us all to identify you know, a passion that was outside of the church. And besides just spending time with friends and family, because everybody's going to say those things. What was our passion? And I said, well, cheerleading for me. And he said, within the seed of your passion, is, 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 sorry, within your passion is a seed that tells you what God's purpose for you on earth is. And so I thought about it and I thought about it and then it, it suddenly came to me. I lift people up, sometimes literally. Right? Right? But when I look back on my ministry and my, my passion for developing leaders in the church, I mean, this is what I lift people up. Right? And so um, I, and I think coming to this point, uh, you know, after 20 years of congregational ministry, after four years in judicatory work, I've landed in seminary and I look back and I, I all the way through my greatest joy has been in helping people deepen their spiritual walk with Christ in helping people discern what their gifts for ministry and mission in the world are and to help to develop them so that they can use those and like go forth and do the thing that God has created them to do. Like that, that, that's what gives me such great joy and satisfaction. And, you know, now that I'm, I'm working in a seminary, it's what I get to do all the time, which is very, very fun. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it was very funny when I first went, cause when I first tell people I, I do cheerleading, there's snickers and there's, you know, because the sport has a certain reputation, right? Mm -hmm. But when I try to explain exactly what I do, your know, jaws drop and people are kind of a little shocked, not least because I am 50, but also because, you know, I'm an ordained Anglican priest and I'm a cheerleader, like how? how? <laughs> but when I start to be able to have that kind of conversation with people that, you know, well, I just... I lift people up. That's what I do. I lift somebody in the sky and, and, and show her off to the rest of the world. When I, when I turn back to my ministry setting, that's what I do there too. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and you're definitely the first um, cheerleader <laughs> I've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> definitely. The Anglican church, mm -hmm. you've been, how long have you been ordaining women? In Anglican Church of Canada, it was 1976. Okay. Five. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, because I think we're about the same age. So one of, one of the reasons I started this podcast is our denomination has been ordaining women since the beginning. So we've been doing it for like 120 years. We st and we, right. still are, we still are wrestling. We still wrestle with that. You, so you grew up with them already ordaining women, but it was kind of a new thing. It was a new thing. Although I don't think I was ever really aware of it. I... I remember when I was, you know, six or seven asking my mom, you know, can girls be priests? And she just said yes. But the priest that we had at the time in our church was a man. Just happened to be that. That's how she presented it, right? Right. Um, I think she was very intentional about not ever wanting us, uh, you know, I'm one of four, three girls. She didn't ever want any of us to think that there was any barrier to us doing anything. The first time I experienced a woman priest's ministry was when I was... I guess 14 and we had a woman assistant priest come to our to our parish for a couple of years and I wasn't even aware at the time 
of how important it was for me to see that. But that's a right. pretty formative stage of life, right? And so that we had this ministry team of a male priest and a female priest working together completely collegially. I mean, she was assistant in, in job title, but the way that they ministered was as colleagues. And so that probably had a bigger impact on me than I was even aware of at the time. And then as I started to get more involved in diocesan youth ministry, I met more and more women priests and, and it, yeah, it just, it became, it's just normal. It's just a thing that we do. I love, I love that. I love that you had that example early on, you know, especially, especially in those early teen years and, um, and saw that as an example. Um, Well, and I do remember the first woman bishop we had in Canada, she was somebody I knew, she was in Toronto, and she actually worked part-time in the seminary where I was overseeing field education. And she was elected and ordained bishop during that first year I was at seminary. And so in some ways, I think that probably had a bigger impact on me because I was aware of that, right? Where you know, ordination of women as priests happened when I was too young to really even be aware of it. I do remember the service of ordination of of Victoria Matthews as a bishop, because there's this point in the, in the ordination service in the, in the Anglican rite, where the presiding bishop asks if there's any objections, sort of like you do at a wedding. This was the first Anglican woman bishop in the communion anywhere around the world in the Anglican church where no objection was raised. These are, um, sounds like this is like a verbal objection, like, right? It's a, like, yeah, it's, it's a space for a verbal objection. Yeah. yeah. When my friend Kevin um, was ordained a bishop, he is openly gay and partnered, and there was an objection raised at his ordination as a bishop. I, I feel like you got to be pretty bold to do a verbal objection. Well, yeah. Well, and, and at Kevin's ordination as a bishop, the presiding bishop at that liturgy had been told ahead of time that it was coming. So he was prepared you know, which I think is kind of nice. I don't know about you. I've never had a wedding where anybody has stood up and said anything. You, yeah, you leave that space and you kind of look around and get a little nervous. Please don't say anything. Please don't say that. Because you, just, because you know going in that, you know, and this for the ordination, it was particularly true. They had crossed every T and dotted every I because they knew that if anybody was going to object, they had to be ready, right? So what do they do if there's an objection? Is there, what's, is there, what's the process after that? Well, in, in, in the case where there was an objection, because they had told the bishop ahead of time, the archbishop ahead of time that they were going to raise it, he actually said at the outset of the service, I've been told that there is this objection and that it's going to be raised. So before we start the service, I'm just going to address it now. He, he said, I've got this letter. It's signed by this people. I know that they're here. And so rather than have it happen in the middle of the liturgy, I'm just going to address it now. These are the concerns that you have raised. These are the the procedures that have been followed. They all meet, you know, the the canon laws of the church. This was a lawful election, and therefore this is a lawful ordination. And that was that. Okay, so so whoever's doing the ordination just addresses the concern. We'd already done that. Like in the Anglican Church of Canada, to be elected a bishop, like all of the reps of the churches get together and you have to have a majority of clergy voting for you and you have to have a majority of lay people voting for you. So there's already a really high bar to make that happen, right? right. It was really clear that this was an upset but vocal minority who just felt like they needed for reasons of conscience to make a statement. Yeah. You know, every denomination has a different 
as a different, yeah. You know, polity structure. And in the Anglican church, like what we do in Canada is different than what the Episcopal church in the States does. Like in the Church of England, the bishops are all crown appointments. Like in theory, it's the queen, but I'm sure there's like a committee that looks after it for her, you know. Um, So yeah, even in different churches within the Anglican communion, the way we get our bishops is different. And yet it's still all the same Jesus, so. Yeah, like the spirit has this, sneaky way of working in and through all of the weird processes we human beings put in our way sometimes sometimes it's hard to trust that and sometimes we actually do get in the way I think and God can work anyway I had a student come to one of our reflection groups a couple of weeks ago because they're getting ready to graduate it's in my, my final year group and so he's considering a couple of options for where he might be called to minister next. And so the question is, how do I know? Like, how do I know where God wants me to be? And I remembered um, what a friend had said her bishop had told her, which was, God might have a preference, but wherever you land, God will use you Mm -hmm. and God will work through you. And if you end up in the quote, wrong place, unquote, God's will and purposes will still be able to unfold like no one of us is so indispensable that if we somehow misinterpret the signs and end up in the wrong job like somehow god can't work anymore like yeah we seek to be faithful and we seek to hear where god wants us to be and we have faith that whatever god can work in us and through us and, and be transforming us and the people around us through our work and our ministry Oh, yeah. It, his grace is much wider and deeper than we give it credit. Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. and it, it's this sometimes and it might just be our North American kind of individualistic kind of culture of, you right. know, I need to self-actualize and like all of that. And yeah, you want to be the person God created you to be. And, you know, we're part of a wider community and we're part of the body of Christ and God can mm-hmm. work through all of the other parts when we're not feeling our best and you know, all things work together for good for those that love God. So, yep. Somehow it's all going to get done in the end. Whatever and, the end looks like. Yes. Yeah. Thank goodness. We I, already have a savior. It ain't us. I kind of like the close with this. Any advice, words of encouragement for women who are uh, beginning to sense a call to some kind of vocational ministry? I mean, I've, I I said earlier, I've always heard God speak most clearly through the voice of others around me, you know, folks who know me, who know my gifts, who care about me. Those are the people God has used to speak to me. And so if you're struggling to hear what God has for you, that might not be a bad place to start, Mm. right? Is to find those people who, you know, love you. And who can be honest with you to seek what God might be saying through them. And to also, I mean, we talked earlier about the importance of mentors is to find those people. I can't think of very many people at all who would say no to a request to somebody who was thinking about ministry to enter into some kind of mentorship, you know, some kind of intentional series of conversations to together learn and reflect on what God's doing in your life. Spoken like a true, a true doctorate of leadership. <laughs> <laughs> Good, wise advice. And I, so I, and I appreciate you just coming on the podcast and sharing yeah, all of your fun. wisdom. It's, it's always fun to 
well, first to meet somebody that you've only known online. That's always right? fun. But also just to have the opportunity to take that step back from your day to day and to think about the kinds of questions that you've been asking, right? Because right. I think we get so caught up in just the doing of our lives that the opportunity to step back and reflect on them doesn't always present itself all that often. So, Right. Well, thanks so much. 